0: many of the established churches uh, function. Our trip and the purpose of it was to meet with new um, cross-cultural workers who had just started the work there amongst the Yao people. We we support that work through uh, the Houstons who have been there now for a number of years. Uh, But it was just starting out in the early 2000s and um, it's a very well-established team there now. But we also visited, that's some very early church planting work or sort of very early mission work, but we were visiting more established churches too, particularly in Zambia, where they've, had, uh, they've got a Baptist theological college there and established churches. And one Sunday we got along to this church, and their church gatherings are something to behold. Uh, I mean, compared to many of our church gatherings, the difference just cannot be overstated. Um, if you could just pause for a moment and just uh, allow me a little bit of fun in reflecting on our experience of churches on Sunday mornings. This isn't at anyone in particular, and for those that did see me unusually hovering around the back of the service this morning, uh, it wasn't for the purposes of this illustration. I would hate for you to think that I was checking off who was arriving and when, okay? I wasn't doing that. This was written before this morning. But you see, when we get up on a Sunday morning, what is it that many of us do? Perhaps uh, I'd like to suggest most of us find ourselves, at the very least, thinking about all the options we could be doing on a Sunday morning. Now, for those of us that are here this morning and and did come along, we obviously made the choice to get along to church, which is great. We got here. Uh, The majority of us did get here on time. Uh, Another majority of us got here right on time. And another majority of us got here at various ranges afterwards, times afterwards, the actual start time. And speaking of the start time... Um, There's a number of us here that think it's way too late, it's a waste of a day, you know, this great Sunday they could have, they've got to wait around till 10 o'clock before they can even get to church, such an inconvenience. And there's another majority that also think um, that it's way too early, you know, they wanted to sleep in, it's their only morning to, and why on earth would you put church on at 10am? And of course, when we do get here, how many of us uh, say a little prayer on the way in as we're parking in the car park? Not necessarily where's the best car park, But something along these lines, please, Lord, I don't feel like talking to too many people this morning. I don't actually want to meet anyone new, and I don't want to see that person or this person or that one. In fact, no one would be great. I just want to drop in, I want to drop out without any fuss or small talk. Amen. Um, And then we get here, and we're wondering how long the service might go for. How many of you walked in this morning and went, oh, the table's set up down the front, communion. Oh, on Father's Day, it's going to be... There's another 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes extra. I'm glad you're laughing. For those that aren't, please do. I'm deliberately exaggerating and being funny and thinking of no one in particular. And I, I would suspect many of us, perhaps all of us here, because we're the faithful ones this morning, don't actually think like that at all. But what amazed us in Africa as a team was just how the local church gathered, how the Christians gathered together, and for how long they gathered, and for what they did when they gathered. Now, in terms of what they actually did, it was very similar to us. They sang songs, they prayed, they shared together, uh, they read God's Word, and then someone preached from God's Word. Um, But it went a a little bit different. There was actually no set start time. We had to figure out when to get there and hope that we'd arrived at the time it started. It seemed to start when everyone was there. How they know everyone was there, we have no idea. But a lot of people had come. Some had been, we'd been told, had been up since 3.30, 4 in the morning uh, to walk, to get to to the church. So they wait for them, to honour them, wait for them uh, to arrive before they actually start. So church kind of grows and it builds and then all of a sudden the gathering seems to be starting. And uh, there's no specific number of songs that we're aware of. They just sing and keep singing and dancing and singing and and sing some more and, and keep dancing. Um, no one was clock-watching or timing the service, very obviously. Um, no one seemed to have expectations for how long the preacher should or could or would go for. Um, same with prayers. You prayed until the prayer stopped. And when the service did finally come to sort of a close, and I'm talking at least the three, three-and-a-half-hour mark, um, it seemed the gathering seemed to just continue on. It just sort of morphed into something, what we'd call a church lunch. Um, And that was just kind of people bringing whatever they had and uh, the pastor's house on site next to the church getting fleeced as everyone went across and so, what's he got? So they um, generally the pastors are uh, generally more looked after than the rest of the community and so their houses become like a storehouse and people um, would go and and get the food and they prepared it. And that went on and on for at least another three hours um, as a church lunch. Well into late in the afternoon, and uh, the faith of the African Christians was was nothing. There was nothing individual, or private, or personal about it. It was all very much about others. It was all very much about community. And as a team, that's what we were greatly challenged by, their expression of community. I share that with you um, because I want to suggest that perhaps community is something that we do quite differently in our part of the world. And we don't seem to do as well as perhaps we could or as perhaps we once used to many, many years ago. Uh, I know that cultures are different. It's not about right and wrong. It's about understanding the culture that we're in and working within that. Uh, I will confess, uh, if we did anything that sort of free and and unorganised and unplanned, um, I'd be utterly exhausted and wouldn't be a part of it. That's just who I am. Um, And maybe many of us are like that. So it's not necessarily about uh, right and wrong. Um, But my sense was that um, somehow these African Christians, these Zambians that we met in particular seem to better understand the value and power of what community can actually be. Well, this morning, as you know, if you've been here for several weeks, you'd know that we're going through a series of what it means to be a gospel-centred church. We're up to uh, part three in the series. This is the final part in the series. And um, we'll be uh, challenging ourselves this morning. I certainly have been challenged in preparing it. When it comes to understanding ourselves as the church... When it comes to seeing what church community is. And community is very much at the heart of what it means to be the church. There are many words, there are many images. Uh, The Apostle Paul seems to narrow down on just a few that we're going to look at this morning. And our passage comes from 1 Timothy, it's chapter 3. It's the last few verses, only verses 14 through to 16, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, you can open your Bibles today, I'll be reading it in a moment. Um, But in it we discover this clear picture of what church is and of who we are as the church, as the the community, the people of God. Before I read it, let me just uh, introduce us or give us a bit of background to what we're reading. Very important. Um, But first, Timothy is the first letter of two that we know of that Paul the Apostle wrote to Timothy. And uh, Timothy is... um, He's is a, is a young man, he's much younger than Paul. In fact, when Paul wrote this, Tim, this letter to Timothy, he was uh, what turned out to be in his final year of life. He wouldn't have realised that at the time, although he lived every day expecting his life to end at some point. And uh, it turned out that uh, within about 12 months of writing this, uh, he was probably executed in Rome. But it's his first letter to Timothy. And Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus. He's the pastor of the Ephesian church, you know, the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, you know that, you should know that uh, Paul established that church, he was the church planter in Ephesus and he was pastoring them, he was their planter and established them and then he pastored them for about two years uh, before getting into a bit of strife with the local idol makers um, who went out of business because people were stopping, stopped buying idols and worshipped the living true God and uh, literally a council meeting was called the city was outraged and they were going to lynch paul and the elder said to paul you need to leave rather than die here uh keep sharing the gospel so he was only there for about two years you can read about that in acts chapter 20 but some 12 years after paul was there young timothy's now pastoring the ephesian church and he's having a little bit of trouble for a number of reasons most likely because of who he is um he was young um, he uh, had a, a lack of experience or certainly was perceived that way and his general demeanour was very different to that of Paul's. Uh, Paul was a very uh, fairly robust and assertive leader. Uh, we know that he, wasn't, he didn't look like a robust and assertive leader when he turned up to the place. In fact, they would often overlook him and didn't realise he was there. He could write a ferociously mean and incisive, in, godly, in a godly way, letter uh, to the churches. It wasn't nasty but he was very, very strong and very, very assertive. And then when he did turn up, he obviously had a lot more chutzpah, as they'd say, or boldness, than Timothy. Um, and so Paul writes to encourage Timothy. You see, Timothy was a timid person. He was uh, very quiet. He was often sick. And uh, Paul kept saying to him, mate, you've got to get into a little bit of wine. That's you know, That will help you not get sick so much all the time. Uh, in another part of the Bible. So there's a big contrast. And Paul writes to, to this young Timothy to just strengthen him. He wants to come and visit. He probably wants to um, you know, pull the stick out again and get stuck into those that are giving Timothy a hard time. Um, but he also wants to strengthen and encourage Timothy, just as any good mentor would and should do. And so these few verses that we're going to read this morning at the end of chapter 3 come right at the middle of this, of this letter of 1 Timothy. And they're actually the heart of the letter. They summarise the heart of the letter. The first three chapters, Paul's been writing positive instructions to Timothy, uh, giving him encouragement and this is what you should do and just do this and just do that and this is why. And then the last three chapters, he gives him negative warnings about the challenges of church life in a pagan society and what he must do and the church do together to continue functioning as they've been called to function. But here in these first few verses in between, we have this very purpose of the whole letter. and It gives us a reason for Paul's concern for his mate Timothy and also for the church in Ephesus. So let's read it. It's up on the screen. And I'm going to read it from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. He says, "...although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household." Which is the church of the living God? It's the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul packs a punch when he writes, doesn't he? That's one massive sentence. Verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world and was taken up in glory. That's at the heart of this letter from 1 Timothy. So what instructions is it that Paul is writing about in verse 14? He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing you these instructions in case I'm delayed. Well, it could be what he's just written in the first three chapters, the positive instructions on what to do and how to be. It could be what he's about to write too. It could be the whole lot. It's probably the whole lot. It's probably a reference to the whole letter. He was really keen to visit Timothy and the church, but he's an old man now, and for whatever reason, he hasn't yet made it. And he's keen to get there because he's heard of what's going on in the church, not only Timothy's, uh, the way he's being perceived and the way people are responding or reacting to him, but he's also been aware that there's a bit of trouble brewing in the church. There's false teachers that have uh, come in the church, they're stirring up trouble, they're leading some astray, this happened nearly in every church. Uh, It doesn't tend to happen as much these days as we've sort of established denominations now, Um, but certainly as the church was growing, uh, this was a massive issue, a massive issue, Uh, These false teachers springing up, leading some astray. And yet, it's still the church. It's still the church. It's far from perfect, just like every church at that time, and just like every church since that time, and just like every church today, and every church that will come. It's far from perfect. There's always more work to be done. There's always more of our lives as individuals and together that need changing, that need transforming, that need to... Uh, respond better, more appropriately, to the good news of Jesus, to the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're all a work in progress, aren't we? And so in our reading, God gives us, or Paul gives us, God gives us three images of what a community of faith is and therefore of what we need to be reminded of uh, as we continue to work towards becoming a gospel-centred church. And the first one is this. They all come from uh, verse 15. The first one is this, that we are God's household. And the word there for household simply means uh, it's actually a relational structure, is what it's referring to. Uh, it means a family. You will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, says Paul. Um, last week, Nathaniel kind of touched on this. Uh, well, that was the theme of his passage um, that he took us through from the letter of Ephesians, right? And in that same, uh, the same letter from Paul, he refers to the church, again, as a, um, not a place, not an event, not a building but rather the gathering of God's people. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you're now fellow citizens with God's people, and you are members of God's household. You are members of God's relational structure. You are members of God's family. I wonder if you've uh, perceived church this way, but it got me thinking, maybe when we come together as a church and we gather like this... Um, we need to see this as something like a family reunion. You know, like, you know, it's like the family reunion. You're not all that close with your family, you know, generally. Some of us are, and, and closer to different ones and so on. But often today we're geographically challenged or um, we've just our lives have grown and, and so on. But when we come back for a family reunion, there's just this, you just pick up where you left off sometimes, don't you? I know they're not always good. Sometimes they pick up where they left off, you know, they, they sort of left off down here and they continue to go down there. But generally, that's what a family reunion is like. Maybe we need to see our gathering as that, a coming together. This is who we are. We're a family. We're God's family, His household. And there's no option to be anything other than that. And so, as Christians who declare their allegiance to faith in Christ as Lord and Saviour, that's who we need to recognise we are a part of. We have joined the family. We haven't just come to faith privately or personally or individually. Uh, That needs to happen and that is a very important thing to happen. But uh, it's for a purpose. And more importantly is that we are called together as the church, as the body of Christ, the community of Christ that lives amongst the broader community and demonstrates who Jesus is as we do that. Uh, Notice we're not like a family either. He says we are the household of God. It's not a metaphor. This is who we are. And the truth is that according to the New Testament, specifically the teachings of Jesus, if we can get really pointed on Father's Day, um, our church family is actually more important than our physical and biological families. And I know there'll be a range of views on that in this this place. There'll be some that absolutely know that. And there'll be others perhaps here who've heard that for the first time and thought, hang on a minute. Really? Uh, Is that what... Can I say that? Is that just said? Is that right? The church family is more important and will actually outlast our physical and biological families? Well, Jesus made it pretty clear in his own words, in his ministry here on earth, that that is the case. I'm going to read to you a a couple of passages. I had them in another thing, so I'm now going to, in front of you all, really quickly look them up without any practice. Look at that. There you go. Thank you, Lord. Um, one comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 40. This is Jesus, uh, right at the start of sending out the first 12 disciples. He's gathered the disciples, he's called them, and he's gone. You know what? You've seen what I've done. You know who I am. You now need to go out and proclaim who I am and do the same, because the kingdom of God is at hand. So these are like this is like a commander giving his troops the sort of the big hurrah as they head out into a hostile world. And uh, halfway through it, in verses 34 to 40, this is what we read Jesus saying. Some of your Bibles will be in red letters. It's because um, we know this is Jesus' words. He says to them, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's a bit different to uh, the Christmas carol cards. No. Um. For I have come to turn, and then he quotes, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And he goes on, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. Uh, And then he goes on, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. These are really, really hard words, aren't they? They're very direct words. They're very clear words. They're not words we can just ignore or overlook. Um, they're very direct and they're clear, and they're from from Jesus. What does he mean? Uh, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter uh, is not worthy of me. Well, Jesus is making it very clear that to come into God's family is to join something uh, way more way bigger, something way more marvellous, something way longer lasting, something way more profound than the earthly families that we've been born into. And uh, many of you will, will know that, it takes time to know that and to experience it. Uh, Jesus is not saying that we need to uh, hate upon our mother and father or separate from them or you know pay out on our siblings and so on. We, we are also called to make peace, to be those who are Uh, who have the ministry of reconciliation towards our family members and to bear witness to Christ in our lives with them as well but he's saying when it comes to priorities when it comes to understanding who we really are as followers of Christ Jesus as the body of Christ as the community of Christ then make no mistake that is the priority over and above our worldly families sorry fathers if you thought you were coming today to get um, praised and lauded over and It never happens any other day of the year, so that's okay. But there it is. Don't feel sorry for me. It's fine. Um, Mark chapter 3, verses 31. Elsewhere, Mark records this, uh, Jesus saying this. Um, Flick over there, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. He actually gets uh, a little more direct. He's speaking to Pharisees and teachers of the law. It says this, And Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and they were standing outside, and they sent someone in to call Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Um, and this is what Jesus says. That's so kind of a distraction. Jesus is doing ministry, he's serving uh, the kingdom, he's living out the kingdom. And then uh, his brother and mother turns up and the crowd go, Oh, your, your family's here, your family's here to see you. Um, they're looking for you, they're outside. You know, the expectation is um, drop everything because family's a priority. Jesus says in verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? He's very good with questions. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So there's Jesus in a perhaps a more polite way, making a clear distinction that He considers him his earthly family as uh, nowhere near the priority as that of God's family, the, the family that are in God's kingdom. They're confronting and alarming uh, words of Jesus. These teachings, aren't they? Uh, Particularly in our part of the world. Uh, I want to put a challenge out to us this morning, and I've been challenged by this myself. um, How easy it is to make the core nuclear family unit, as we understand it in the West, a really distracting idol. How do we do that? Sometimes, as parents, as fathers, we have expectations, as mothers, we have expectations of what our kids should be or what our family should look like. And we haven't helped with that as churches. We've actually put pressure on each other to to have nice, polite, lovely-mannered, well-adjusted families and and children. And yet sometimes when it comes to the fact we've all got to choose faith in Christ for ourselves, sometimes uh, we have no control, we have no say over what our children will grow up and decide, what our children will grow up and, and, and choose for themselves, despite our best efforts, um, and often in response to our worst efforts. And and that's that's something um, that can be be painful. But uh, we need to be reminded this morning that uh, we're not called to make an idol of the nuclear family, that perhaps we've overly focused on that, and we need to actually adjust our thinking, be challenged this morning to see the church as far more important, it's going to outlast and it is far more important than our physical and biological families. Well, here in these few verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the very purpose of this whole letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And he gives us the reason for Paul's concern uh, for both Timothy. So I said that earlier, didn't I? Um I want to say this morning, as you think about family, some of us um, have positive experiences of family, as Nathaniel prayed. Some of us have negative experiences of family and a whole range of in-between. Sometimes our families aren't anywhere near what we had ideally hoped for. Uh, Other times we've come to terms with that and we've adjusted to that. Other times it's a source of discouragement and lament for us. Um, But as we look at what a family is, according to the Bible the family of God, can I just ask we suspend our ideals of family or that we just put aside our experiences of family? Because sometimes we can we can project idealistic ones or we can project horrible negative ones that we've really suffered from. So just put those aside, the dysfunctional family experiences, the gloriously fabulous family experiences, whichever the case is for you. And let's just uh, suspend our thinking and our experiences just for a moment as we look at these three reasons why church family or church as family is so important the first one is this a family gives us support and encouragement you know just like your own earthly families uh, ideally uh, where we get to spend time together we get to support each other um, we get great encouragement from being part of a, of a healthy family uh, and it's important for God's family to get together on weekends It's important for God's family to get together. You can get together during the week too. Uh, The date and the time is not important. It's it's important to get together in a regular weekly basis throughout the week to stay connected to each other, to to be supportive of each other, to build each other up, and to encourage one another. Uh, I really missed being part of a local church for the six weeks I had off a couple of weeks ago. Um, That's one of the things, and I actually felt quite detached, unhinged. In every meaning, probably, of the word. Um, It's great to have a holiday. It's great to go and and do different things. It's great to drop into other church families. But I was definitely a very, very long-lost relative in those church families. This is our, for us, this is our church family here. And it was really noticeable of of what we missed out on in not worshipping here together. Last week, um, the elders and and Nathaniel and I got together and we went through uh, how things have been going in the church family. Uh, not only in my absence, but just in in general, Uh, where we're headed together as God's family here, as this local church. Um, We do that with the elders and and the leaders of the church because that's what we are, a family, and we've been entrusted to to lead and serve this family, and that's what we need to do. Um, This coming Tuesday, our church care team will meet together, and we're going to do the same. Uh, As we do each time we meet, we go through the list, the directory of those that have put their names down and said, we're part of this church family, and um, and we pray together. Um, we bring needs that we're aware of, and we make sure that uh, there's, there's a few as gaps as possible. I know that we don't get it right every time, but that everyone is at least being covered and connected somehow. And, and we champion from the front that in a church our size, you have to connect in smaller groups in order to have that real intimate family connection and support and encouragement together. That's what we're a part of here as Tari Baptist Church an expression of the local church. And that's what we are. We're a family gathering. Um, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says this. Uh, he gives a, a instructions in how we can actually relate to one another as the family. Many examples he gives. Here's just one. 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Um, younger men do the same as if they're your brothers. Older women relate to them as if they're your mothers. Relate to younger women. As if they're your sisters in all purity. It's this very explicit family metaphor, family image, of who we are. Christians that are to gather in local churches for the support and encouragement that can only come from a family. And when you think about it, neglecting to meet regularly with the family is like skipping a meal with the family or skipping a family reunion event for no really valid reason. The second thing why family is important. It's because a family goes out of the way to keep unity. Uh, since we're a family, it means that we should go out of our way to stay unified, to make sure that we, are a, uh, that we have common unity, community, that we are sharing together around the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to say that um, some of the most heartbreaking stories exist uh, when you hear about what some families go through and experience and suffer. And we know many of them, teachers here at our school, are engaged and connected with with many, many broken families, far too many broken families. I know many of us here uh, are from broken families, right in the middle of it. Um, And they really are um, tragically sad stories. A son or daughter walks away from mum and dad and totally breaks contact. Parents are left in constant anxiety because they don't know what's happening. They haven't heard from a son or a daughter for months, for years. Um parent's marriages fall apart and one or both fight over the kids or decide to walk out on them or it's just heartbreaking. It's messy, these situations. And we need to love and support people who go through them. We need to love and support each other as a church family. Well, the same goes for our church family too. Just as with our biological families, um, that sort of dysfunction is extremely painful. Conflict can also be extremely painful in church life and i'm sure there are many of us that can think about painful times in church life together well we go out of our way to keep the unity and you know what we've been given the very power of god to be able to do that we've been given the gifts to work things through we've been given this completely unique way of forgiving each other just as god in christ forgave you and putting things right and working through things to the extent that we're able and we do whatever we can to stick together and to stay together, to work through our differences with God's help. And, you know, I know that we leave churches. We're not setting up little family cults everywhere. Uh, we know that we, life, we, we move and, and there comes a season in life. We think, you know, I need to move somewhere else or be a part of another church family. Well, we do it well. We leave well. You know, we say goodbye to this part of the family and we go and join another part of the family. We take our time, let them get to know us and us get to know them and and we do things well. We ain't not just leave without saying goodbye or, or just jump in and expect to pick up where we've left off into a new one. I want to say this morning if you come from a broken biological family that's another reason you really need a church family. How many of us can actually say that? They can say that I just love this church family. I know a number of people who say this is my church family because of the brokenness that I have come from or am in the middle of and it's all the more why you need a local church family well the third thing is this that family has your back since we're family we look out for one another uh, we look out for each other i remember uh, several years ago i was young and my next brother down about 18 months or so nearly two years younger than me and uh, we never really got on very well we're very different we get on really well now he actually flew over during my six weeks leave and we went camping together and i went to perth and caught up with him there too we're very different but we um I, I really value Murray, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a, a great brother now, but he never used to be. Um, and so, uh, when we when And maybe I didn't either, perhaps, come to think of it. Um, but uh, I remember one day I was standing on the balcony of the Year 5-6 balcony, it was the only two-storey building at our school in the eastern suburbs of Perth, um, which is the same as western suburbs in Sydney, by the way. It's not eastern, it's not eastern suburbs, you know. It's the opposite. Anyway... I'm standing there, I look out in the playground, across the end of the playground I see everyone playing and I see, my this is a great position, when you made year five and six, you're up on the balcony, you see? And so I could see across the playground and I saw two kids beating up what appeared to be in some sort of altercation with my youngest brother and before I knew what happened, what had come over me, I found myself flying down these two flights of stairs, sprinting, and I'm no sprinter, sprinting across the schoolyard and before I knew what had happened, I'd done some weird mixed martial art thing before it would even been invented. And I'd completely flattened these two year three students who were picking on my brother. And I sort of came to and just sort of went, what was that all about? You know. And thankfully we were able to clean up the mess, wipe off the blood and disperse before, before any, any teachers came. The yard duty teachers didn't see it. But the point is that true family bonds run deep, right? And you might not get on or might I choose to get on or you might go, yeah, wouldn't normally hang around that person. But family bonds need to run deep. And in Jesus Christ, that's our unity. It should run deep. It needs to run deep. That loyalty, your family has your back. Sometimes there's a lot of hurt between us as Christian people. And maybe you can think of a time that you've been hurt or maybe you've even hurt others and you finally come to your senses about that. Um, But when this happens, it's because we've stopped seeing each other as family, as brothers and sisters in in Jesus Christ. Well, moving on, and for those who think, wow, he's only up to point two, uh, these are very quick, the second two. What's the second two images that Paul writes to Timothy about in these few verses? Well, he says this, not only we are God's household, but we are uh, the church of the living God. And this is all about to whom it is that we belong. And it's the very nature uh, that the church The very nature of the church is that it belongs to God. Paul writes um, also in verse 15, he says, God's household is the church of the living God right from the beginning uh, when he established the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20. We read of Paul saying farewell to the elders after he had finished there for his two years and they had told him he needs to leave because of this public riot that had started. And this is what we read in verse 28. He says to these elders, he says, and this is through tears, he says, "Them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. What a powerful statement, a powerful reminder of whose we are, of whom we belong to. We don't belong to church leaders, we don't belong to pastors, we don't belong to denominations, we don't belong to institutions, we belong to God, God himself, and he shed blood through Christ to purchase us, to buy us as his own precious belongings. Um, elsewhere, Paul calls the Ephesian church God's own possession. He says, You are God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, if that doesn't make you feel extremely, unbelievably loved, then I don't know what else, what else can be done for you. We are God's own possession, bought with the blood of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's an enormous difference between the God that we belong to and the many other gods that are worshipped and feared back then in Ephesus and still today. You know, in Ephesus, um, there were many pagan gods and temples. There wasn't a minute of any day that went by that you weren't reminded of every other god that was there. And so the, the difference, we, we get used to it. Oh yeah, I'm God's possession, I've been bought by his blood, that's great. This is profoundly unique as a breakthrough through a culture with uh, men and women um, worshipping all sorts of dead gods, idols, bits of wood and metal that just stare back at you blankly and here we worship the living God the only God who is alive and well and in whom we can have mutual relationship there's a big difference well the third thing this morning from this image these few passages is this that we are also the pillar and foundation of the truth We're the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the church also in verse 15 um, the image here is lost on us you know But for the Ephesians, this was just so striking. In the ancient city of Ephesus stands what is today seen as one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world. It hasn't made the current world because the picture to the bottom right there is how it stands today, the Temple of Artemis, and there's nothing wonderful about that. But in the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana, a goddess in Greek mythology, this was just this stark, glorious building. And this is the image that the Ephesians would have gone to the minute Paul wrote that you are the pillars and the foundation of the truth. Um, the Temple of Artemis, uh, it's actually, by the time Paul wrote this letter, it was in its third rebuild. And each time they rebuilt it, it got grander and grander. It got destroyed in a flood once, around 300 BC. Um, it got destroyed by some um, Goths that came down and burnt it. And each time, they would build it bigger. And bigger. Uh, it had 127 pillars around it, and each one was a gift that had been given by a particular king to honour this great goddess. She was seen as uh, even more powerful and worshipful or worthy of worship than Zeus, and yet she was a daughter of Zeus, apparently, the story goes. Um, 127 pillars, each one of them had, uh, and, uh, were, was made of marble, it was adorned and studded with jewels, and then it was laden with gold. There's only a few marble pillars that remain today. But the function of these pillars was to hold up this enormous roof of the temple. And here, Paul says that the church is the pillar which supports or hold up the, holds up the very truth of God. That, that's the image he has here. Marbled, jewel-studded, overlaid in gold, strong, precious and immensely valuable. And he's saying that every church is responsible for supporting and bolstering up the teaching of the apostles. The truth that has been delivered, that has been passed on to the churches once and for all time. Which is why the gospel is so important to be central to all we do and all we say and all we are as God's people. An offensive message, this gospel. An offensive message and a glorious message at the same time. Offensive and exclusive in that uh, it, it says that connection with the one true living God is only possible through Jesus Christ, there's no one else. That's the only option. Every other God is a false God. Every other God is wrong. This is the living God. Um, And yet at the same time, being offensive and exclusive, it it is um, universally welcoming and inclusive. It's a message to anyone, no matter who you are, religious and non-religious alike, to accept and believe and trust in this message, in the person of this message, the person of Jesus, is for everyone. It's wide open, welcoming, and inclusive, and, and that's the deposit that's been given to us to pass on to generation after generation. The deposit to never lose, never turn away from, or exchange for any other gospel or teaching. You know, that's just a remarkable image of who we are as the church, isn't it? Pillars of the truth. Upholders of the truth. And it's remarkable, especially today. Think about it. We are charged with the privilege and responsibility of holding out the truth to a society Crying out for truth, trying out for meaning. You know, with all the experimentation that you can't know truth and truth whatever you want it to be and everyone has their own individual truth and it's all about your story and we're all just one big eclectic, blended, multicultural, multinational, multiethnic family and nothing's right or wrong and you do whatever you like that kind of brewed around the 1950s and perhaps culminated in the early thousands. You know, all the research is saying of the young, uh, younger millennials coming through, it's the complete opposite. They've had a gutful of it. I want to know truth would somebody stand up and speak truth would somebody tell me what outlasts my opinions what's bigger than my perspective what's bigger than my feeble weak experiences would someone give me something to hold on to and that's who we are we are pillars and the foundation of god's truth in a world that needs it well when we gather maybe let's start seeing our gatherings as powerful and meaningful demonstrations that we are God's family, the church of the living God, a living, breathing, creative... Oh, how good was August! Uh, Art in August, by the way, that's Sunday? I wasn't here, I missed it, but you're still talking about it. And uh, from what I saw, just wonderful to see people worship and use their, their gifts creatively. But that's who we are, living, breathing, creative. We're dynamic, we're relational. That's who we are as a gathering of people who are loved by God, called by him to worship him and sent out to bear witness to him in this world. And lastly, if we just finished, I'm really glad the Connect guys are back for, uh, for communion, which we're going to finish with, with this morning. But Paul spells out the glorious gospel, even in these little verses. I wonder if you picked it up. Really succinct. It's one stanza from a hymn. We know it's a hymn because of the way it's written. It's in verse 16. Six foundational truths about Jesus. And these truths... Uh, are seen as mysteries, once mysteries, that are now made known. And they're actually beyond all question, says Paul. He says, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then he launches into this, this hymn. They're called the mystery of godliness. And it's been revealed to us and made known in the person of Jesus. And when he says that, that this is beyond all question, it means it's beyond dispute. This is what the, found, the founders, the, the first apostles, have, have agreed upon it's beyond dispute this is why it's ridiculous some of the some denominations and the, the the bickering over doctrine that happens just get back to these six this is beyond dispute live these out you know it's hard enough challenging enough but here they are just quickly jesus christ appeared in the flesh he really is a human being fully god and fully man he's not god who somehow and morphed himself into a human but was still God. Um, he's not a human that was suddenly anointed by God and filled by God for a purpose. He is, and it's a mystery, both one and the same, fully human and fully God. Christ Jesus appeared in the flesh. Christ Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. That is, the spirit of God vindicated Jesus Christ, most especially through his resurrection. No one else rose Jesus from the dead. Uh, Jesus was risen from the dead by God. There was no one there, no priest performing anything. wasn't the disciples praying hard. God raised Jesus from the dead. He was vindicated in the spirit. Jesus was seen by the angels, absolutely revered and worshipped and honoured by the angels. Jesus was preached among the nations. Uh, The message is for all people of who he is, and he is for all people, all the nations, not just the nation of Israel. He was believed on in the world. All nations have responded to that preaching. And that's who Jesus is. That's, who, uh, that's what's foundational to, to what we believe of him. And Jesus was taken up in glory. These are the standard convictions of a truly Christian church. Doctrines that determine truth upon which we stand, the truth that we proclaim, and they are all concern the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, which sets him apart from any other religious leader any other religious figure that has ever lived before, since, or who will ever live in the future. And these six, of course, were witnessed to, established, agreed upon by the apostles. God became man. He died for our sins. He triumphed over death. He was honoured by angels and feared by demons. And he ascended into heaven and he has promised to return In all his resurrection glory. It's a message that's been preached, you know, right over the world for two thousand years, and billions have heard it, billions have believed it, and you and I, a couple of hundred of us here this morning, are such a small part of that massive, massive church community, church family of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be reminded of as we gather around this table? For communion. We're going to go straight into communion this morning. I might ask for the communion helpers um, to come down the front and if you could just um, take the cloth off there and uh, we'll just uh, continue focusing our time, our hearts and our minds on, uh, on what it is we remember and celebrate around this table.